on the Legal Economic Nexus podcast. Michigan State University institutional economists Eric Scorzoni and Sarah Klammer explore the work of heterodox and institutional economists. Institutional approaches to economics have a long history going back over a century, but are becoming even more prevalent since the trauma of the Great Recession, global financial crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. We will be interviewing current thinkers from the fields of economics and the law to gain insights into important new research, approaches, and tools to understand the economy. Hello, you're joining the Legal Economic Nexus podcast, and today we have a special guest, Anne Mayhew. Uh, Anne is retired from the University of Tennessee and is going to be joining us for some interesting discussion about institutional economics. So, Anne, thank you and welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So, we're going to go ahead and get started with the question on kind of your career and where you where you started. Um, how did you end up becoming an institutional economist? What what kind of brought you there? What were some important early influences for you? Okay. Well, I grew up in Southwest Texas and in a very 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 small town, and watched a lot of social change taking place during a very drought of the early 1950s and um, the growing urbanization. So I was interested in, in uh, I was aware of, of society, let me just put it that way. I was fortunate enough to be able to go to the University of Texas in spite of the hard times. And it was a very cheap school in those days to go to if you were a native of the state. And um, I was fortunate also to be in an honors program where there was an introductory social science course called Social Science 610. I still remember the, the numbers. Those were taught by Clarence Ayers who was, of course, one of the uh, major participants in, uh, in, in institutional economics in the interwar years. And Ayers had a profound influence on me. I learned to think of, of uh, economic analysis as part of general social science analysis. I learned a great deal. Even though I graduated from the University of Texas with a major in anthropology, I'd taken a lot of economics courses and was influenced by a number of other people on the faculty at Texas in those days who were also institutionalists or fellow travelers of institutionalism, if I may borrow a phrase. So that was how I got started. I went on to study uh, anthropology at the University of Chicago, but then uh, got married and had two children, and being an anthropologist wasn't a very practical career, so I wandered back to economics and uh, wandered back to Austin, after a while, and uh, wound up getting my PhD in economics at the University of Texas. What were some of the key things you learned from Ayers, would you say, in that process? Well, I've often thought that the main thing I learned, and it's something that's caused me a lot of trouble in my lifetime, is that economics was indeed a social science. It did not stand apart, and that one had to be aware of the history and of the culture and um, uh, et cetera. I also I think I learned the importance of culture, an idea that I want to come back to again in a few minutes, and that we are all, however individual we may be, are part of a culture. We are encultured. We learn to, to speak the language of our parents. We learn to think in the way of our parents and our, our relatives and our neighbors. And um, But I also learned, I think, a kind of irreverence for the existing order. Ayers was never content to 
accept things as they were. And he challenged a lot of people were quite content with the way this was the, this was the early 1950s. And there were a lot of kids in that program who had it made. They saw no reason why there should ever be any uh, change. Ayers challenged that. And um, I was quite receptive to that, to that notion. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, given your, the length of time you've been involved in this, you know, where you see institutional economics today versus where it was even in the 1950s, 1960s? Do you feel like we've made advances? Where do you see some, some of the good things that are happening and maybe some of the things where maybe we haven't made progress yeah. in some cases? Well, I think that institutional economics went through a, a, a dark period in the 1970s, 1980s, there was a resurgence of, of the kind of uh, neoclassical economics that we associate very much with the Chicago School, but there was also a, uh, the growth of widespread applicability of, of um, advanced mathematical techniques, which uh, were inconsistent with institutional economics. I like it. The, I, I like this statement that a friend of mine made a long time ago, and that was that mathematics, at least as used by econometricians, didn't have enough verbs to let you talk about uh, economies well. And uh, I think in institutional economics, we need a lot of verbs to describe what's going on, and, and math didn't allow that. But what the mathematical, what the emphasis on mathematics did was that it squeezed out time to learn history, uh, to learn about other social sciences, to learn the things that are required to make a good institutional e economist. And so as people coming into the study of economics uh, tried to, to advance their own careers, they really found that they could not be institutional economists and, and, and do that. This meant that graduate programs were squeezed out I also think that institutional economists themselves, those of my generation and maybe a little bit younger and a little bit older, uh, share part of the blame because we got sort of tied up in some arguments among ourselves and weren't as receptive as we should have been to things that were happening in other social sciences. sciences. I think the other thing that happened that's very important but often not talked about is that institutional economists lost their access, for the most part, to data. Uh, Malcolm Rutherford, in his important book on institutional economics in the interwar period, points out that the institutional economists, from Wesley Mitchell, who was, of course, one of the founding fathers, on through uh, Morris Copeland, on through Dudley Dillard, etc., all used the data that was increasingly available through the government agencies that they, saw, they were so important in setting up. I mean, again, John R. Commons and all the students that he trained who created Social Security, they were, they were setting up these government agencies and they, had, they knew how to use that data. Increasingly in the 1960s and 70s, the use of, of uh, data became the purview of those programs, which were much more mathematical and were much more involved the use of the new computing power that came along. And that again, institutionalists generally didn't learn how to use. Um, I know I certainly didn't, and most of my friends didn't. And uh, 
I think that cut out the, that made it impossible for an institutional economist to continue to do the kind of empirical work that had been so important to them in the 1920s and 1930s, because they, they didn't have, they, they just didn't have access to the big data sets. I think that's interestingly one reason why institutional economics did survive in, in a number of ag programs, et cetera, because through the USDA, through Ag Econ, uh, you did continue to have access and, and, and encouragement to use that data. In other economics departments, institutional economists sort of turned in among themselves and started talking about their own theory, which was of interest to no one but themselves. And that helped, that helped kill us off. Yeah, one of our questions was, yeah, whether, because I know there's been a sort of criticism, if you will, of institutional economics that maybe it, it was too internal, too focused on criticism of neoclassical economics and not how to develop new approaches. I mean, does that kind of tie into what you're also saying right now? Yes, it, it does. I think that's, I think that's partly true, although I don't, think it is quite fair to say that, that uh, are quite accurate to say that institutional economists have been too critical of, of a lot of mainstream economics because I think it's deserved all the criticism that we've given and, and then some. <laughs> but um, and the criticism is often rejected on the grounds that we don't, that institutional economists don't really understand mainstream economics, which I think is not always true. I, I got a pretty good grounding in, in basic economics, mainstream economics, um, and I think many others did as well. I just don't choose to speak, to, to do that kind of, of, of work. But I do think it is true that institutional economists uh, did not devote enough of their time and attention to solving problems, to, to engaging with uh, the, the ongoing economy. I think they were, they became much too much, as I say, focused on their own rather narrowly defined problems. So I think that is true. I have thought for a very long time that one solution to that was for institutional economists to be more engaged with other social scientists. And I think there's some very interesting things going on right now in, um, in some branches of psychology and have, have been for a long time in sociology. So there are opportunities there. But that's a very dangerous thing for, for young economists who are already going to have trouble getting tenure in a department that is already, that is heavily mainstream. And so I understand why it hasn't happened. It's been very difficult to rebuild the kind of bridges between institutional economics and the other social sciences that I think existed back in the 20s and 30s. One of the articles you wrote that I thought was really fantastic, the American Economist article from 2018, where you laid out kind of three basic ideas that, you know, I was kind of hoping we could explore because I do think for the younger generations, you know, really what is institutional economics? What does it mean? How do you do it? I thought that article did a great job. So could you just talk about those three concepts for us? Sure. Yeah. And, and thanks for saying that. I, that was an interesting article to write because it really made me, go back and think, what is this What is this field that I've been working in for all this time? And uh, I started off with the idea that enculturation or culture is the very most basic 
concept of institutional economics. You know, if you think about the economics that you learn in most introductory economics courses, it starts with an individual who is uh, a rational individual making choices, has tastes and preferences, etc. You don't ever really ask where those where those came from, and if you do ask where those tastes and preferences come from, you told well that's for another discipline, that's for another study, that's for something else. Well, institutional economics starts right up front by saying that all of us are born into a particular culture. And not only do we learn our native language, uh, we may learn other languages, but we're always much influenced by the one that we first we first learn. Uh, we learn uh, what to eat and what not to eat. We learn uh, how to behave, how not to behave, etc. And we also learn just how to go about the normal, everyday business of, of living. So that most of what we regard as our economy are things that are learned, things that are part of, of our culture. And in this modern globalized world, there is a great deal of commonality across the world, but there still are profound variations in what, in what we what we expect from other people, what we expect, how we expect to go about provisioning ourselves, etc. So you start with that idea of culture. From that idea of culture, I think you move to the um, um, to the next idea, which is that if you're going to study the economy, you have to adopt an empirical approach. Now, let me deal for just a moment with that word because it's a very tricky word. Empiricism to most economists over the past half century has meant some form of econometrics. If you say I'm going to take an empirical approach, then it means you're going to, you know, you're going to do some form of econometrics. I'm using empiricism here in the much older sense of the word. And it means you're going to try to find out either through statistical analysis or through ethnographic study, going out and observing and asking, okay? or perhaps by reading documents, historical documents and other documents about a particular people. You have to describe what they do. You don't start with assumptions. You don't proceed deductively. Almost all of mainstream economics is deductive in nature. You start with some assumptions, and then you, go, you move on to some other assumptions. You may test those assumptions or test the, the fit of whatever data you have to those assumptions. And if they, usually, if the data don't fit the assumptions, you sort of look for more data to, to, to fit the assumptions because the assumptions are assumed to be true about, you, about human beings. In, uh, in institutional economics, the approach is very fundamentally different. And you're trying to you're trying to describe without carrying in to your analysis anything more than you have to in the way of assumptions about the way things are done or the way people think or the way they they feel. Okay, then you move on from so you have you have a, a set of techniques that are available to you. Generally, these are techniques. And this is one of the problems. Generally, these are techniques that are best learned. These days, not in economics training, but in the training again and other social sciences, uh, which is one of the one of the real problems. Although you can use statistical techniques that are taught still in some economics programs, but I'm talking much more about descriptive statistics here. 
Okay. And armed with this idea that all people, that enculturation is the basic process that makes us who we are, and that we're going to learn about that through this kind of empirical approach. Then the third step, the third thing is to recognize that economies as systems of interaction among people that are about provisioning, about providing ourselves with the things that we need to, 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 to wear and to eat and, and to have what we consider a good life, that the way in which we provide those things changes through time. And sometimes institutional economics is called evolutionary economics. And of course, Thorsten Veblen wrote a very famous essay a little more than 100 years ago about why is economics not an evolutionary economics? He thought it should be. And what he really meant there was that we should, be, we should try to understand how economies have changed over time. How do, they, how do they change? And we certainly have to be keenly aware of the change in economies right now in the, in the, in the era that we're living in. Things are changing so very, very rapidly. So the task of the, of the institutional economist is not only to describe, but also to try to understand how that change occurs. And the institutionalist theory, the major institutionalist theory that has emerged from 125 years or so of thinking about this question, is that there, there are always two things going on. One, as human beings, we're always very comfortable doing things the way we learn to do them at our mother's knee. We want, we want to hang on to things the way they were. We don't, as human animals, we don't much like change. Okay? But the other thing that's always going on in human society is that we are driven by what Thurston Veblen called idle curiosity and the ability to, you know, to manipulate things with that opposable thumb, to talk to each other about things, to learn to do different things. And when we learn to do different things, we do different things and that changes what we can do, it changes how we, how we will do things. So there are conflicting forces that lead to this kind of evolution of economic society. And that's where you come back into my other uh, real interest in economic history, is that as you read economic history, you can see those two things playing out against each other. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, that's great. So along those lines, I know, you know, from what I can tell, you've had sort of a debate with some of your colleagues about the role of the instrumental valuation pro principle, social value principle, uh -huh. or tool. Can we talk a little bit about, you know, sure. your idea of how you actually wrote an article, um, Culture Under Attack, and right. you right. wrote even a piece in a few years ago, I believe, again, talking about this issue. So could you talk a little bit about explaining kind of where you saw the tension there that was going on. But it was also a tension that arose in other social sciences at the time that I, that I was aware of. And the, the um, you know, if you, if you, let's step back for a moment and think about the, the context in which institutional economics was operating. On the one hand, you have Marxist economists, and Marxism appealed to a lot of institutional economists because it was very critical of the existing order. And, and you know, it was, it was sort of, fun, especially in the 60s and 70s, to be a radical, and um, so it appealed to a lot of people. But Marxism offers a kind of utopian future in which there's no more expropriation, in which the, you know, everybody gets the value of that which they contribute, you know, things are distributed. And so that, um, 
that was one kind of, of, of goal. On the other hand, you had the uh, mainstream economists, particularly of the Chicago variety, who said, well, if you just get rid of monopoly and you get rid of um, government regulation, then we would have this kind of utopian economy in which consumer sovereignty would prevail and um, uh, you know the, the wages would be the, those that earned and according to the value of the marginal product and, and etc all would be all would be well and good. Uh, institutional economists didn't have any very clear goal out there. They said economies change. Mm -hmm. But they didn't say this is where we're 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 going, and particularly Thorsten Veblen, who is generally regarded as as the major founder, um, was very sarcastic about the existing order, but said, you know, I don't know where it's going. Who who, who knows? And um, so Mark Toole attempted to address this, and again in this context of of uh, of kind of. Uh, utopianism or wish for utopias that existed in the, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, I think in particular. And uh, he offered his, his idea of a social value principle. And he said, of course, inst institutional economists can, we, we know that there are these two processes. Let me go back. We know that there are these two processes okay, that are always ongoing. But at any particular time, institutional economists can judge what is a better social arrangement. Okay. And they can do so by applying this social value principle. And the social value principle would involve the uh, non-invidious, let me see if I can say this correctly, non-invidious recreation of community through the application, through the instrumental application of knowledge. Well, this struck me as wrong because I in my understanding of institutional economics and in my understanding of in general is that what I would regard as invidious, what I would regard as instrumental use of knowledge, what even what I would regard as community at any particular time is based in part on my culture where I am right here and right now. So I can't escape, I can never escape that. Now I can begin to, you know, I can learn, I can move, I can change, as we as we all do. But I can never say I'm going to 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 give you a judgment right now that is going to be free of my culture right now. I'm always going to have these these two things intertwined. Okay, and so I argued with Mark Toole, with Dale Bush, with, with others. And, and I had powerful allies in, in the farm of Warren Samuels and Wendell Gordon, who were also arguing with me, that what institutional economics need, economists needed to do was to be very humble and say, look, we'll try to ask some of the right questions about this, but we cannot offer any kind of lasting utopia <laughs> or even semi-utopian sort of solution. We can say what we think, we, we can say, Yes, right now, it, this does not seem to be working. Right now in the United States, our, our healthcare system doesn't seem to be working very well. And here are some ways in which, you know, we might think, some of the questions we might ask, some of the things we might think, what have we carried forward that doesn't work with the existing uh, modern technology? 
Uh, but we're not going to pretend to be able to offer a kind of ideal set of arrangements in the sense that the Marxists over here and the Chicago School over here do. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. it's, no, it's, it's, such a, it's such a, it became such a convoluted and difficult kind of uh, argument that I have a little trouble, you know, compressing it. <laughs> sure. Yeah, well, I was just curious, partly because I know you wrote about this, say, in the 80s, and then again, you wrote the piece in the uh, encyclopedia, I think it was 2015, okay. where you kind of restated those same ideas, mm -hmm. and I, right. it seems like an ongoing tension even today. Yeah, perhaps, yeah, it, it is, although I, and, and uh, I still hear, uh, I went to a meeting of the Association for Institutional Economy, for Institutionalist Thought, and Denver, I guess, a couple of years ago, and I was surprised at how many people were using the social value principle. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, when I asked them, you know, how does it apply here, they also had trouble with the precise meaning of those words. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. yeah. But I think it's become kind of a, a mantra, we say. I mean, you know, it makes everybody feel better. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> right. That's rude. Yeah, no, no, you can edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> so turning a little bit towards sort of money and monetary thinking, um, I was curious because Morris Copeland, um, I was curious what you thought. I mean, he's not a person in some sense is always put up at the, as the you know major thinkers, but it does seem like he had an interesting role and uh, just kind of curious what your thoughts are on his takeaways from his thinking yeah. and who he I mean, was actually even. Yeah, I, I think Morris Copeland really should be rediscovered and more should be written about him. And I actually, this was one of those things a couple of years ago that I intended to do, but then I got sidetracked and uh, maybe I'll still have time to, to do some more on it. Morris Copeland was one of a number of, of uh, economists, institutional economists during the 20s and 30s um, who created a kind of... Uh, macroeconomics that was um, that was really swamped by Keynesian um, economics and uh, we've forgotten that it even existed um, and uh, but there's still some powerfully good ideas there that need to be resurrected then um, I think that Morris Copeland's idea of money as electricity is one of those ideas that would do wonders for us if we could resurrect that and, 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 and start thinking in, in those terms. Um, to just to give you a little bit of brief background here, Morris Copeland uh, worked with uh, Wesley Mitchell, who was the founder of the National Bureau of Economic Research um, back in the olden days. And um, what Wesley Mitchell and, and Morris Copeland both thought was that in, in in an economy such as ours, in which making money is as much the goal or perhaps more the goal than making goods. I mean, ours is a monetary economy in which we, we, we do things for money because money gets us other things, but that one needs to be able to trace money flows. Morris Copeland said that ours was actually an accounting society. And I think that's really exactly right, that we, we keep accounts with each other and, um, uh, and um, so he, 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 said, he did a remarkable job. He um, 
at the with the encouragement of of, um, of Wesley Mitchell, and just working with pencil and and paper, created flows of fonts in which he didn't try to classify all uses of fonts as either the familiar savings or consumption or investment or any of these things which we have in our national income accounts, but rather he classified them as where those flows went so that what portion of the house and the flow that comes into the household in the course of a year goes to farms and other small privately owned other and other small privately owned firms. What's, what portion goes to corporations? What portion goes to governments of different levels? And so you're tracing where the funds go. And then from those, from those units, where do those funds go? So that you've got this whole tracing out of, of the flow of funds. Now, in the 1950s, in the early 1950s, the flow of funds was taken over of funds analysis was taken over by the NBER and um, is now, or is taken over by the Fed, I should say, and is now published by the Federal Reserve Board, flow of funds statistics. But those flows of funds are not quite what Morris Copeland did, because instead they have been converted into the kind of national income uh, statistics, so that you say, okay, what portion of household income goes into consumption, what portion of household goes into income? goes into savings. But that wasn't what Morris Copeland wanted to do. He wanted to, you know, trace this this through. And all of this was in aid of his understanding that there's not a fixed amount of money out there in the economy. Rather, money is like electricity. And, and this is the way I, I think about this. I get my electricity here in Knoxville, Tennessee, basically from the Tennessee Valley Authority, and it's sold to me by KUB, the, the municipal company, they buy it from TVA. TVA does not have a specified amount of electricity stored up in its various dams and generating capacity. It produces more or less electricity, depending upon whether I go and turn that light switch on or whether I you know, turn on uh, the, the, the heat in my house if it gets cold enough ever. And, uh, you know, so there's a, there's a there's a call upon the generating capacity. And when that call is exerted, then TVA generates more electricity. If I don't call upon that electricity, there's not electricity that goes somewhere. It's just not there, okay? And if we thought about money that way, we could think, we, we would, I think, think much more clearly. This is where, this is where it becomes really important to think about money and credit as being the same thing. And you see, if you go back into the 18th, 19th century, economists for very good reason at that time thought about money as being one thing, credit as being something else. But we now live in an economy in which there's so little, there's so little difference. I mean, I buy almost everything that I buy these days with a little card, which I have right here, except I can't get it out of my wallet. I don't know until I use it till you know, until they tell me at the end of the month how much it was in that month. I mean, you know, it, it could be a whole lot if I just went out and went wild, or it might not be worth anything if I, it might not be any money. That's what we've come to in our world. In that world, it makes perfect sense to talk about the endogeneity of money, as the modern monetary theorists do. Yeah, mm -hmm. yes. yeah. yeah. I don't know, does that answer, does that 
Yeah, no, that's very good. Yeah, I, I, uh, I recently got one of Morris's books, and it was, uh, but it was in remote storage, so it took a while to get it. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I now own. I, I actually now own his, uh, his stud study of money flows. I had to, it took me a while to, mm, to, yeah. to buy one, and uh, it, it, it makes it's, it's important stuff, and it needs to be recreated. I mean, yeah, it really does. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a nice segue into MMT, which um, has gotten a lot of publicity lately. Stephanie Kelton, in particular, um, who worked for Bernie Sanders, of course, and now has right. a new book out. And I know you've kind of written about it recently in terms of your thoughts about MMT and, and maybe where they've overplayed or your hand, as you called it. Yeah. We just kind of generally, what is MMT in your mind? And then right. kind of where you see some of the problems with the MMT approach. Yeah. Well, Monetary theory really, is, as I first understood it, and this goes back 20 years or so, more 25 years, sort of grew out of the kind of analysis that I was just describing from, from, from Morris Copeland mm -hmm. uh, and grew out very much of, um, you know, the work that people like Dudley Dillard did at the University of Maryland and uh, others. Uh, and, and they saw money as, as endogenous, money as as you know, being created, money is credit, money and credit is the same thing. And money is being created within, by the economic activity. So that, you know, it's like the electricity. I mean, it's not, it's not just sitting there until mm -hmm. somebody falls it for it. Um, and so uh, Randy Ray and others picked up on that idea of, of endogeneity of money and elaborated on that. And I think did some, some very uh, good work because one thing uh, they pointed out that um, the course of the business cycle uh, could be accounted for and perhaps control of the business cycle gained uh, by controlling uh, the fragility of uh, money as, as, as money was ex expanded. I mean, again, to use the electricity uh, metaphor, I always think of it as you know you're going to trip a, a, a circuit breaker. I mean you're, you're going to you're going to call you're going to call on too much and circuit breaker is going to trip and then you know things come crashing down and you can do all sorts of things with that analogy. I think a funny thing happened though, and uh, this really goes back to the 80s and the to 1980s and first part of this century. We began to think in this country that the Federal Reserve had an enormous amount of power, partly because Congress abdicated power over the, the economy. Congress no longer uh, actually no longer used fiscal policy nearly so much. We came to think of monetary policy as being the powerful tool. Well, when the young mon modern monetary theorists began to think about how to control the business cycle, they rather naturally gravitated to the Federal Reserve and said, well, the Federal Reserve had this power to control matters. And so instead of sticking to the idea that money is, is really endogenous, they attributed a good deal of power to the Federal Reserve to determine how much money or how much electricity there is out there. This is where you've got all kinds of arguments in, in, in among the... Um, uh, the, the post-Keynesians about being a horizontalist and a verticalist, and there, there are all kinds of arguments about that. About that, but I think the modern-day mon modern monetary theorists tend to say, well, the Fed 
can uh, expand the money supply. So, so long as so expand the availability of money, of credit, let me put it in, in the better terms, and can continue to do so without any, without any problems. I'm inclined to generally agree with them in an economy that is as dominant as the U.S. economy has been. Okay. I'm not nearly so worried about the government in debt as a lot of people are, because I do think that the federal government is strong enough, has sufficient uh, power to continue to, uh, sufficient taxation power to continue to, to borrow. But what I think is that the Fed cannot cause people to spend money. So we forget about the other side of that, that, that being willing to supply money isn't sufficient. I mean, somebody has to go and turn that switch on over there. What Randy Ray and a number of the other modern monetary theorists do is get around this problem by conflating Congress in the United States with the Federal Reserve and saying, well, the Federal Reserve can spend more. Excuse me, the Federal Reserve doesn't spend. Congress has the power of the purse. We are right now in a precise example of that. I mean, I just read a few minutes ago that the Senate adjourned for the rest of this until December. They've gone home. They're not going to spend, they're not going to, to consider a bill to spend more on relief to people who are uh, unemployed by virtue of the pandemic. Um, and so the Fed has plenty of resources sitting there, but the Fed can't give any stimulus checks to people. The mm-hmm. Fed can say, yes, come and borrow from us. Go flip that switch and, and get some more electricity, mm-hmm. some more money. But they can't, they can't cause me to, to, to use that electricity mm-hmm. because they don't, they, don't have, they don't have that power within our existing structure. So that's why I think the modern monetarists have gone wrong. And it is entirely understandable because they've operated in this context in which we've all thought that the Fed was all powerful. You mm-hmm. see, we, we moved into that sort of back in the 80s, et cetera, when Milton Friedman got us to think about the Federal Reserve. And, uh, and, but it doesn't work that way now. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And obviously, as we continue to debate these issues around uh, stimulus, around government debt, you know, clearly very relevant to today. Yeah, and I I will say that I'm not, I I worry a little about um, the modern modern monitors because they also, I think, make the mistake of thinking that what is true right now might be forever true. I'm not sure that the federal government of the United States can go on borrowing $3 trillion each year. Mm-hmm. That Right now, it's no problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it could conceivably be a problem uh, if China began to provide the reserve currency of the world. I don't see that happening immediately, but it could. So Yeah, sure. And again, that goes back to, that sort of goes back to one of my first points. Things change. That's that's a that's a fundamental proposition of institutional economics. Right. Yeah. Very good point. Yeah. Um, let's end on just a simple question. What What would your uh, advice be to a young person interested in institutional economics today? What What are your thoughts on where they need to think about training? What, what should they be thinking about? 
obviously institutional economics have always been about change, about thinking about the issues of the day, but you know, what else would you say to them perhaps? Well, my, my advice to young people who come to me is to, to first get a very good grounding either by getting a master's in public administration or a master's in, in um, even in a, 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 even an MBA with, the, with a lot of finance and accounting so you understand how firms actually work. Uh, maybe an ag econ. I haven't kept up with ag econ so much because I don't know what's, what's going on there. Um, but learn how part of the economy works really well before you then move into economics um, training. I would also say uh, spend some time uh, studying and reading and learning what, what uh, sociologists, what psychologists are, are, are talking about, do some other work in social science, and then do some economics. Okay? But don't take it too seriously. Yeah. A, a friend years and years, years ago said that price theory, which is what we used to call uh, so Chicago economics uh, wouldn't hurt you. It was kind of like chewing tobacco. It, um, it it wouldn't hurt you if you chewed it. It just hurt you if you swallowed it. And I kind of feel that way about a lot of economics. It's not going to hurt you if you if you chew it over, but just don't swallow it. <laughs> so, but I don't know. That's not very good advice because that involves, you know, 10 years of study before you start to earn a living. And so I don't know how you do that. My answer is, my answer is that if I were, if I were in my early 20s now and trying to figure out what to do, I probably wouldn't become an economist. I'd look elsewhere. <laughs> and the other, just, just, just one other thing that I, that I didn't say. I think a lot of the really good work that's being done in what I might call the tradition of institutional economics is being done in various think tanks, is being done by journalists, is being done by the Economic Policy Institute, is being done by the Rockefeller uh, Group. Uh, and so, I might, if I were young and starting all over, be inclined to get a, a, a master's degree in statistics, study some accounting so I could understand how business firms talk mm -hmm. to themselves, and then start to work in one of those think tanks, mm -hmm. figuring out what's yeah. going on with what's going on with the economy. That's what I would probably do, wish yeah. I could do. Sure. No, thanks. No, that's very good. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks again, Ann. We really appreciate sure. your time. Again, you're listening to the Legal Economic Nexus podcast. And again, our guest, Ann Mayhew. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Bye.